Welcome to Clearly Product. I'm Anna Marie Clifton, Product Manager Between Things. And I'm Sandy McPherson, working on a new thing. <laughs> yes, we are thing product managers. Yes, yes, we work <laughs> on things. So welcome back. This month we're going to be talking about Just Enough Research by Erica Hall. So this book is something that, it's a topic that we've been trying to find a good book on for a while now, which is user research, which is a topic that we know is really, really important, but oftentimes it's hard to find a good book on. So we found this one, we really like it. It's from Erica Hall, who I'm pretty sure works at Mule Design, which is a design shop in San Francisco. And we chose this book because it seems to be the most applicable for the most people in our audience, people who are working on the you know really small early stage startups all the way to people who are at bigger companies working on major features in bigger products yeah so with that let's jump right in super super high level this was basically a like a reference book yeah, like it was, yeah. it's a it's a pretty like general purpose reference book it's a very easy read it's only like 130 pages or something like that long and they're not very dense pages. Yeah. Um, it's not to say that it's not good, but uh, if you're looking for something that's a quick and easy read on research, this is definitely a strong recommendation. Yeah. I think one of the things um, that we talked just briefly about before sitting down to record that's different with this book versus our other books is that this one is much more of a reference. So in a lot of our other books, people were talking about theories and experiences and general best practices, whereas this was much more tactical in terms of when you are doing this type of thing, use this type of research and here's why and here's how you do it. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling our conversation today is probably going to be a little bit different mm -hmm. um, than other books. But yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it did have a, a good collection of checklists. Hmm. Just like, if you're doing this kind of research study, make sure you think about this in advance, do this during the study, and then afterwards these eight things, you know? Right. Yeah. So I found that really useful, and I think it's uh, really applicable across a broad spectrum of skills. Yeah, I had, I had a similar feeling, which was just that beyond skills, it is, like, like I said in the intro, if you are at a bigger company, there are some issues that you would never encounter if you're at like a two, three, five person startup, such as getting stakeholders aligned with what you want to build, which is something that she covers, which is really important, if obviously, if you're at a bigger company. So she does a really good job of being inclusive to lots of different types of products and types of companies. And you kind of hinted at a little bit too, is that just the, the tone of the book? I mean, she's constantly making little jokes. It's really approachable and fun. Um, she does give lots of helpful examples. And the nice thing too, is that she chooses one example that runs throughout the book, which is a science museum or mm -hmm, science yes. center. Like a family science museum. Yeah, so she's constantly referring back to that as her example when she's going through these different techniques to use. So it allows you to get a better understanding instead of just picking random examples for each one, you can match them back to that one example which is helpful to follow that throughout the book. I will say one thing that always bothers me <laughs> about the research topic is this just this general sense that you need research, we promise. We promise it'll, it'll make your products better, we promise. But we can't really tell you how much better or how much you'll need or what will actually happen if you do this research or not. And it's one of those things that is it's just really frustrating. And I'm a very firm believer in research because I think it can dissuade you from inaccurate mental models and things that can take your product off a cliff. But it's quite frustrating. It's consistently frustrating in my life that there's no way to like quantify that. Right, right. How yeah. do you deal with that? Well, I mean, I think it's just one of the constant tensions of building a startup is, I mean, 
especially with the current or not even current but the never ending <laughs> sense of people working on things in silicon valley is that they have to be quantifiable and that metrics and numbers rule all and there's often time not enough credence giving to the fact that these products are made by and built for humans and the idea that it's often difficult to quantify some of the things that drive people to one product versus another, why people take certain actions versus another. So I think it's one of those things where I forget what's the expression. It's like an art and a science. Mm. So there's and not saying because I think there's also a bit of tension around designers specifically don't like um, and it's not fair at all to call what they do like art, mm. but just with that expression of some things are more in an art type of way versus a science type of way. And that's, yeah, that's just one of the challenges, one of the, not necessarily trade-offs, but one of the things that it takes a lot of time and effort to get good at is understanding how much, mm -hmm. uh, those, like those questions that you have, like trying to do a good enough job of getting a gut answer to those or getting enough, you know, I mean, there's other ways to answer questions. It can be like experts that agree with you. It can be um, how people engage with the product, not necessarily from a numbers basis. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges that I've seen play out at several companies now mm -hmm. is that the the desire, I would say like the the building people in organizations tend to be driven by a desire to have exact answers to right. things. And so the all of the fields that drive input to building things have to struggle to like map what they produce as an output into something very quantifiable because the right. people who are using that input, namely engineers, really want to have like that, what is the answer? What is the, how is it correct? And I do think, I actually think that in the abstract, research can be a science. It's just that it would take significantly more time and energy, like an infeasible amount of time and energy to right. build a science out of it because right. research is just mapping the human mental algorithms mm -hmm. um, on mass and trying to like build abstractions from those. And that's something that in order to do that, you need to collect data that takes a lot longer to collect than to create mm -hmm. and then analyze that data, which takes longer to analyze than to collect mm -hmm. than to create. Mm -hmm. And so you end up way behind time. Like you can mm -hmm. imagine like a little slice of the world that you could research in totality if you spent sure. like the next 200 years doing so. Sure. Tiny, tiny little sliver. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, finding kind of the, the level of abstraction that you're willing to live with. I do think that that's something that PMs really need to develop a personal sense for. It's like, as a PM, you'll need to be the arbiter of when you've done enough research, and then you'll need to convince everyone that that is the case. Right. And it's something where I think there will be times where you'll be incorrect, but it's it's more important to be decisive and help people move forward than to know that you are absolutely correct. Yeah. And I, I think it's also something that hopefully you can do ahead of time also by all the way back to when you're thinking about joining a team or when you're building a company, you can choose people who are understanding of the fact that not everything can be answered by numbers. And so surrounding yourself with other people who, when you come to them and say, you know, this is, we have reached the point now of enough research, aren't going to look at you and say, well, where's the numbers to prove that? Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think, like I said, that's like a lot of people in the Valley operate that way, but it's not everybody. And as long as you can find people who actually appreciate and understand that there's more to products than that, that recognize the value of design, then you can be successful in bringing up how you want to do research and mm. how you want research to be done and to be understood as important. Yeah, so I think there's that inflection point of hiring or joining a team. Mm -hmm. I think there's another inflection point before doing research of agreeing upon what will the goals and outcomes be right. of this research and yeah. how will that change what we do going forward mm -hmm. um, and why is that important. Um, and I think that's something that 
it predominantly falls to the product manager to define a lot of those questions and define the 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 level at which the answer will be considered accepted. Yeah. It's almost like the the same way you do when you're designing products and working with like success criteria of a A/B test or acceptance criteria of a feature that you're shipping and things like that. And it's really about developing alignment with everyone who's involved in the process that these are the goals for this research. This is what we hope to uncover and then this is how it will change our opinions about what we should do based mm-hmm. on what we uncover. And I think the more prep work you do, I think she had a really great phrase that, I forget the exact quote, but it was something like, if you don't do prep work, you'll end up with a hot mess and a kitchen on fire. <laughs> and I, th- I think that's really true. And it's something that if you don't do the legwork in advance, it's so easy to just jump in and say like, oh, we'll let the users tell us, like, right. let's understand our users or other phrases like that. I see the same thing with split testing as well. We're like, oh, well, let's just test it and see what happens. And it comes back again and again that if you have not defined what success is or if you haven't defined the goal of what you're trying to learn and how you'll change your outcome based on what you learn, you'll just end up with a mess and it'll be worse than if you had done nothing. Right, right, Right. because you're just confused at that point. Exactly. You're confused. You get like locked up, decision paralysis. You lose a lot of credibility. Your team has wasted a lot of time. It's just bad for everyone. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I liked about this book is that she's almost like, so Erica tells you how to do things. She's like, here's this process, here's this process. Have these people involved, have those people involved. But then also does a really great job of being like, you can do it. She's like a cheerleader constantly. Mm. She's like, don't just remember, this is going to happen and it's going to suck, but you can keep going. Because I do think that's one of the things where, you know, you're sitting down to like interview user number 10 And you're sort of like, oh my god, why am I still doing this? Like, these people, I keep misleading them maybe on questions is, like, something that could happen. Or none of them are, like, giving me the kind of answers that I want. Or nope, everybody's just answering yes and no, and is it my questions? But she gives really great advice on the softer skills, too, related to research. Again, with the, like, example of interviews where she talks about the importance of, you know, when you sit down with these people you can't just jump into questions. You have to make them feel comfortable. Like, you have Mm -hmm. to care about them Mm -hmm. in some way in order for you to expect them to care about you in any way uh, whatsoever. And so she talks about, like, you need to have, like, a little bit of small talk and, like, Mm -hmm. you need to make sure you do this and you do that. And, like, the environment should be comfortable to them and all the stuff that is sort of on the fuzzy edges of just, like, here's how to run the interview, here's how to come up with your questions, Mm -hmm. make sure you don't do this or that with the questions. So I appreciated that because I remember when I first did user interviews, like, years ago... That was something that I realized after a few of them, I was like, oh, the reason these aren't going well is because these people are just like random people that I'm just sitting down with for the first time and they have no context for who I am. Mm. We're trying to like suss each other out. They don't know like how casual versus formal, like where on that spectrum should they be right now? And so setting the norms of your experience with that person is really important. And it's something that she that she talks about that I was like, yes, this is good because if I had read this, this yeah, would have been really helpful. Helped. Yeah. One thing that I love that I think I actually got from Emma, a researcher I worked with at Yammer, Mm -hmm. is she would start every user interview by saying, this isn't a test. Like, you cannot fail. Right. Because one of the things that happens is people come into these environments and they know that they're being observed. (laughs) And we, we think as humans, when we're being observed and someone is like taking notes about us, typically we are on trial. Right. Like, we are being evaluated. And so she would always start the interview by saying, you're not being evaluated. There's literally no way you can fail. Every answer you give is going to be correct. And we're just looking to understand the product or, you know, whatever it was. If it was usability testing, like, the product can fail, you cannot fail. And I always found the 
that particular phrase was really disarming. Mm-hmm. And there was just a notable kind of like people's shoulders would relax a little bit. Like they could just tell they kind of eased into that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so little things like that, that you'll pick up from either watching really excellent practitioners or again reading a book like this where Erica has some of these little phrases here and there where I'm like oh I'm gonna add that one to my repertoire right right one of the things that I mentioned earlier was just how I appreciate that she gave advice for different stages of companies and so in my case I've only ever worked on really early stuff so I'm curious for you Anna Marie how was user research done differently at Coinbase versus Yammer mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. One of the main differences, I would say, is that Microsoft had a depth of resources of existing like knowledge, like things that we have mm. learned about the space. Because right. Microsoft is building tools for the worker. Mm. So it's like a history. There's a history, exactly. Sure. There's a history and there's also an expectation that you'll continue adding to that history. Mm. So I would say we had significantly more researchers uh, our, our researcher to PM or researcher to engineer ratio was way higher. So does that mean also that there's oftentimes things that you wouldn't have to research because you could just look back at the historical data? You would usually use that to inform how to drive your ongoing research. Right. We're like, oh, well, right. we understand that this is this is something we understand about how communities typically right. form. Exactly. So this can allow us to ask a more pointed question. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's things, nice. So yeah. You have like this like baseline that you're not... I mean, I'm assuming with Coinbase, you had to sort of build that. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that's one major difference is having that uh, baseline of, and you're not going to go back and watch the videos from you know, a decade <laughs> of, of user research, but um, having that baseline and, and a lot of people in the company who maintained that cultural knowledge and could point you to resources, that was really useful. The other thing is the product was much more established at Yammer. So I'd say mm-hmm. the the kind of research that you do it is more... Uh, it, it varies. It's on one end of the spectrum, it's very narrow. It's mm-hmm. like a lot of usability. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it's very broad. It's like, okay, well, now that we've developed to this local optimum and we have a very mature local optimum, what are some other opportunities that might be like completely out of left field? Mm-hmm. And so you go very, very um, generative. And then I would say the Coinbase is at a, a stage where the maturity is kind of in the middle, where you're doing moderately generative things all the time because you haven't really arrived at that like very mature local optimum but then you're also not doing like completely out of left field kind of research right right? and then the last thing I would say is that going back to that that first point about just the ratio of researchers Mm -hmm. to engineers or researchers to PMs one of the things about the type of research that we did at Coinbase is a lot of times the designer I worked with and myself would do a lot of our own research without a researcher involved at all or like the researcher would help just with the recruiting side perhaps and so we had a lot of tools that we just DIY'd, and that was just a matter of necessity. Like, if you wanted research, they're right. just so, so constrained on those resources that you do it yourself. And so a lot of the, I remember the director of user research that joined Coinbase joined the same day that I did, and her big initiative at the beginning was just, like, building up a repertoire of how to do research right. in the, like, right. just in the cultural knowledge. And um, is that just, she's aiming, I'm assuming she's aiming for, like, consistency? Yeah, consistency. Yeah. So, you know, she, she is responsible for the output of research whether she does it or not so it's like the quality of research the fact that it's happening and like the fact that everyone knows how to was a a bar that she was trying to to raise across the company Mm -hmm. and so it was something that I just got a lot more used to just doing my own like I would just street intercepts like go walk downstairs with a prototype and some five dollar Amazon gift cards and just like talk to people about things and I just did a lot more of that on the street on my own Mm -hmm. 
because you had now the frameworks to go and do it and it could be accepted back into the org knowing that it was the right type of stuff. That is a good set of points. Um, the one that I was thinking of foremost is that it was because I was constrained. Like mm -hmm. I just did, I didn't have researchers that I was working with so regularly right. that I could just be like, oh, here's some questions. And then they would right. work on developing the research plan. Right. So it was a, a resource constraint that drove me to be doing more of that. Gotcha. Um, and also like working, uh, we had our designers doing a lot more of the research than a Yammer. We had a team of researchers, sure. but you're right. I do think also the frameworks and yeah. the fact that it would be accepted back into yeah. the org were important pieces I'm just there. thinking of like that person coming in mm -hmm. and trying to define it. Yeah. Would allow you to like more freely do things, but also freely constrain do <laughs> yeah. yes really do things in the <laughs> similar the ways way. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah good question what about the type of research that you tend to do yeah I mean for me over the past several years I'm basically just trying to like find like initial user like needs and pain points and then try to also if there's something that I think needs to exist in the world then go out to ask some sort of like scoped questions to validate if that need actually exists or not mm. so there's, I was trying to remember as I was reading the book, like at what point did I ever go out and ask people questions with a product in hand that I had built? And it's definitely true that I haven't done that as, I think that's also like a common startup thing. It's like, you know, you're supposed to do usability testing and you know, you're supposed to go out and just like re-interview users, but you get caught up in things and mm -hmm. don't necessarily do it as much as you should. So I did that at some points in the past products where I would go back to people and kind of re-interview people, try to understand if like the problems that I had initially identified still existed. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, the world is changing, people are changing, products are changing. So to make sure that what I was building was still from a broader environment perspective, still like the right kind of mm -hmm. thing. And then there was also a point where I started doing like a different type of, I kind of like pivoted how I was doing some marketing stuff. And so when I went to go do that, I was like, okay, I should probably step back, like do a little half step back and go back and like redo personas mm -hmm. and understand and make sure that the people who are going to be targeted for this marketing content specifically, that I get that right and mm -hmm. how I talk about it and who they are and how I identify them. Real quick question, because mm -hmm. this leads into something that I wanted to chat with you about. Personas. Mm -hmm. Now, I think we may have talked about personas on the podcast like yeah. a while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember anything that we said. <laughs> so apologies to everyone yeah, who's like binge listening <laughs> and is like, you just talked about personas. <laughs> okay, real quick. Yeah. Personas. Because Erica goes into how to build a good persona, what the attributes are, how to use them, things like that. Mm -hmm. Your experience with the personas, pros, mm -hmm. cons. I like them personally. I find that... I will often, so like currently right now, I just sort of wrapped up a bunch of interviews and I have, I haven't gone through the, the full process yet of like building out personas. I'm more just referring back to clusters of actual individual people mm -hmm. that share characteristics. So they're kind of like to be built personas, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I find them really useful that way. And like, we're exploring like, should we do this kind of feature? Would this make sense? And mm -hmm. then we can go back to like, well, you know, person A, I don't think would ever use this. Person B would be using this all the time. Person C would use this in this way, but when they do use it in that way, it would be really powerful and blah, blah, blah. blah. And mm -hmm. you can just sort of like evaluate. So I find in terms of the like very early stages of just trying to understand like, what are the 
pieces of the product to try to understand what should or shouldn't exist mm -hmm. when you're like mapping out different user flows is helpful to try to map it to an actual person versus just like the per the user then did this mm, which yeah. is like if you can't have an understanding of okay well who is that user and do you have any sense of if they would actually do it or not mm -hmm. is it nearly as powerful as if you did have an example and you're like well they would do this because they already do that in this other product but mm. it's horrible etc mm. etc et yeah so i have never worked in an environment that had named personas mm, interesting. and i have worked in several environments now that have had archetypes mm. so we would have like the archetype of the community manager mm. which is a person at yammer or using the yammer product who was responsible for managing the communities and the ergs and their organization but we never had like Camille, the community manager right. who is 35 and, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, it's funny because now that you say that, it sounds like actually what, I, um, what I've done in the past is actually more archetype-ish. Because I don't usually name them either. Yeah. I say sort of, I would have just like general and I wouldn't say like, she likes to do this on the weekends mm -hmm. kind of thing, which is like sometimes personas to me, there seems to be a lot of extra like fluff around them. Right, right. So then is that the difference between a persona and an archetype? I would define it as such. I, I haven't read anything that specifically says that, but mm -hmm. I think I would say that there's three categories of this type of work. There's the company that has nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's the company that has archetypes of like, all right, I have my community managers and I have my executives right. and the executives care about engagement the community managers are measured by that you know things like that right. and then the third type would be the persona of a like personified human with a right. name and a history and a demographic right. information the thing that people who fall into camp three like really passionately believe is that when you give that person a name and right, a photo right, like right, it's right, easier right, to build right. for that person like your right. empathy goes way up right. i have seen that uh, I've been in several environments where people have tried to bring personas in and has mm. not worked. Mm. And I think what happens is like they're pe the believers mm -hmm. of the personified persona are like, you have to have a name and a photo to like build for this person with empathy. And then there's kind of like on the other side, I, I don't want to say derision, but like it's kind of derision where people mm. are like, uh-huh, like Jesse, right. you know, right. the, the community manager really cares about this. And like, right. you know, it just becomes a bit of a joke. Mm -hmm. And I think what's most important is that whatever it is, it's taken seriously in your organization. Right. And I as think, long as it works. As long as it works, exactly. And so I think a lot of times people get really caught up on process or like this is the right way to do it. And really the right way to do it is the way that is most effective in your organization. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to like bring in personas and people are laughing at you, that's probably not right. the right way. Right. Yeah. Even though it might be perfect in another environment. Right. So yeah, I would take that with a grain of salt. I would say you definitely should know who you're building for and like what their tendencies are and get to understand that type of person. Mm -hmm. But do you need to build that into a named persona? Maybe not. Mm. One piece that I, I'm not gonna say I didn't like it. I was just kind of confused is near the end. I forget what the section is called, but she talks about A-B testing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I was kind of like, what does this have to do I with know. user research? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I caught up the surprise bonus sections of like okay. the A-B testing. There was something else and in that section too. The like just general quantitative. Um, okay. But then there was also like the organizational research, like researching your org yeah. to understand how it works and yeah, what yeah, drives yeah. it. Yeah. I considered like that piece that and the A-B testing. Yeah, I was like, what are these? Reaching. Yeah. yeah, so the A-B testing part, I was just like... I guess it is a, you could say it's a kind of research. I feel like how people do it today isn't really within, with like that 
purpose in mind. It's more of just like looking for gains across mm. the product. So that was kind of weird. And I felt like it was, I actually don't know when this book was published, but my sense is that like AB testing is kind of like, it seems to generally be a thing that people always want to talk about. And I'm mm. just like, is, was there just pressure to put this in there because mm. it's like a hot topic that people want to hear about? I was like, eh, okay. Yeah. The, yeah. the organizational piece, I actually, I appreciated that. I do agree that yeah, calling it organizational research. I think to do user research well, you need to have an understanding of what your org is looking for and how to make sure that you can do what you need to get done. Yeah. But, but if, it was like framed through this, like there's this kind of research and that kind of research and there's also organizational research. Mm -hmm. And it was like, but that's for a totally different purpose. Yeah. For, it was just, it, it. yeah. I felt, so I deeply enjoyed the organizational research section, but yeah. I felt like it was more like the first 90 days. Mm. kind of book right. as opposed to like a research book. Right. I yeah. was like, oh, this seems like a yeah. great thing to do when yeah. you join a company, no matter what your job is. Exactly. But yeah. And, and I think also, you know, she's coming from an agency perspective mm. where I think organizational research right. is like the precursor right. to any like agency model research. You really need to know who you're serving in that org. Right. Um, yeah. Cause you're coming in from the outside. Exactly. You have no idea. Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I thought it was interesting for, you know, joining a new org or working in an agency model, the AB testing section, like, well, <laughs> Okay, so on one hand, I, I think there are, especially in products that are networks themselves, mm -hmm. there are interactions that only happen in a network environment mm -hmm. at scale. Mm -hmm. And so as you get to understand individual customers or users, they might be they might behave quite differently as an individual, and you might be able to understand their mental model of the world in a very like applicable way. But then if you introduce a change to the product that like has a network of impact, I'm not going to say like a network effect, but has mm -hmm. an impact on the network itself, mm -hmm. people will change in ways that you can't anticipate. Sure. So in that sure. capacity, I do think you can use like behavioral A-B testing to mm -hmm. see like if we make this change in a network, how does it affect how everyone behaves and interacts? And that's like, right. that's kind of interesting. But generally speaking, I think... A-B testing, the, the the type that she talks about is like how to position the button on the right. sign-up page yeah, 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 for yeah. highest conversion. I'm yeah. like, just like, this is not, uh, yeah. it's not research. <laughs> I mean, I don't yeah. I would say there's lots of, lots of really good content about that on the web. I wouldn't come to this book for that. Yeah. Okay. So I had a few things that kind of like resonated very deeply with mm. me in this book. I just want to comment having worked in a few different environments where user research is part of the development process that, oh my God, is this true? <laughs> First of all, recruiting is the worst part. Mm. Recruiting is so hard and so horrible and so difficult, and you should always be working on bringing more people in to be researching. Um, anything you can do to make that easier for yourself, great, but like just acknowledge that that's going to be hard and it's always terrible. Right. I think people really underestimate the effort it takes. You're like, oh, well, who wouldn't want a $30 Amazon gift right, card to right, talk right, right. about a product? Like A lot of people yeah. don't have 30 <laughs> minutes to talk to you about your product. I just could not be bothered. And then also the the fact that your research will be limited by, I, I kind of think of it as a funnel. Like the first thing that your research is limited by is your preparation and the goals and the things that you're even trying to learn. Mm. And then the second thing you're, li you're limited by is the quality of the participants that you source. Right. And then you're limited by the way you run the research itself and, and run the, the actual interview and then by your analysis. And so I think you should put proportional effort into those things like in that order. Mm. And typically people put most of their effort into like just the actual interview. Like right. that's where most of their time goes. Yeah. But if you think about like where your limit limitations are, like it's the f <laughs> being able to get the right people to talk to is yeah. a huge piece. Yeah. 
I think one of the other things that I loved was her comment about how notes or it didn't happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so good. We have, like, research hygiene is really interesting. We had, I remember at Yammer specifically, uh, very strong expectations that research was always done in tandem, at least. There's always the researcher or the facilitator as well as a note taker, and ideally more than one note taker. And if you had more than one note taker, we would specialize in which type of notes you were taking. Mm. So the first thing to have is great is a note taker. The second thing that's great is if you have a note taker who's focused on general notes and then a note taker who's focused on the environment and like what's going on, what oh, they're doing precisely. Mm -hmm. And then if you have a third note taker, that person is just taking down direct and interesting quotations. Mm -hmm. um, and you can do that by watching the recording later, but people tend to not. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is I was just going to ask what about recordings, but it's funny, like I've made them before and then never gone back to them. Yeah. And even, even though I know there's stuff in there. Oh, absolutely. It's just like revisiting that time. I mean, even if you play it at 2x, like it just, people tend to not. And it's interesting how she commented on how that's the case. She sees yeah. that like videos are very rarely like rewatched, but audio people will like re-listen to. Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting. I haven't ever done the audio recordings, but it's nice to have the video recording in case you want to go back and like pull out a very specific snippet and share that around to the org and that can be really useful if you know precisely what you're looking for but to go re-watch or re-listen to get more insight it's very time intensive. One quick thing that I noticed was that as I was reading it and I read it over like several days I was kind of fitting it into little 15 minute time slots but one of the things as I kept reading I was sort of like wait a minute, when do I do which one of these? And is there an order? And how does this all work? Mm. And it was kind of like overwhelming and that she covered a lot of different types of research that you can do, but then there was no cohesive. So here's how you pick which ones and when to do them. But then I realized she does actually do that. On page 39, she has this big chart, mm -hmm. which is looks at like, if you're looking for this kind of thing, do this kind of one. And if you're looking for that, then do this. But I did find that having that more prominent or having that sort of like as a before you pass through these gates you must like mm. think about this a little bit more deeply because for me I found that I was able to just kind of check it out of my brain pretty quickly mm -hmm. and then as I was reading later on I was like when do I do this one and why would I ever do that one and mm -hmm. versus I think some other books do a better job at that where yeah like always base always go back to like first principles of why you're doing it which ones blah 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 yeah so that could have been a little bit better I thought I had the precise same experience oh. where yeah. I was like <laughs> I got to the end of the book and I was like I, look, I mean I know so many things so I just like not yeah. Yeah. Or like how to tie it all together yeah. and then I, I was like flipping back through looking at my notes getting prepared for the recording yeah. and I like earmarked page 39 I'm sure it's like the only earmark I have in the circle. whole page and yeah, it's this exactly. amazing diagram and I'm like this is this is the money diagram yeah. yeah yeah so that I thought wasn't given nearly enough credence no I think this could be like I mean this is the the center keystone yeah, exactly. of the book, really. Yeah. So yes, for everyone who's interested, go to page 39 of the printed yeah. book, <laughs> and that's basically what you need. Yeah. One thing that I found just that I've developed in my own process is that uh, when it comes to like when to do which types of research, mm -hmm. I have started to understand the design process as a bit of a binary tree mm. or potentially not binary but as a like a, a that data structure of the binary tree where every decision that you make is a node mm. and then whichever branch you take on that decision will inform the next decision that you need to make right. and one of the things that I've started to develop is a sense of how to structure the decision tree mm -hmm. such that you find like what are the top level nodes that you need to make the decisions about first mm -hmm. because then it, it'll affect everything it else. affects everything sure. else exactly so um, one thing that I found really useful is when you start thinking about a design problem structuring the whole space that you are thinking about as this tree finding the topmost node and then do a little bit of research there. 
Mm. or evaluate what research you have there that will help inform which way to go. Mm -hmm. Whenever I hit a node where like potentially like the designer I was working with and I disagreed or maybe my manager and I disagreed or the PM team and I disagreed, mm -hmm. like those are ones you want to like dig in a little deeper. Yep. I find that that's a really useful heuristic for how to find the best places to put research. Mm -hmm. And then the, the higher up the node is, the more generative and like mental model mapping the research mm -hmm. tends to be. Sure. Yep. And yep. the lower down, it tends to be like usability. Like in the weeds. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Or yeah. it's just like, here's the, ex the experience. It's at the bottom, it's just like the most basic usability functionality testing mm -hmm. you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes from like that really loose fidelity to really high fidelity. And generally speaking, I find it useful that when you're approaching a problem, like to not be afraid to go up a level and be like, oh, well, right. what decision got right. me here? And reevaluate if that decision was the right one. Because you feel like you're often getting pushed to the bottom and you exactly. have to make progress towards the bottom of this, what it, you're describing. Yeah. Exactly. So a step back is not a bad decision sometimes. Absolutely. A lot of times it's really good to start the research just like one level of the decision tree up from mm -hmm. where you started or from where you entered the problem space, just to be like, okay, were we in the right space? Okay, yes, then keep going. So I find that really valuable way to like just model the design process. Mm -hmm. One tiny little thing I wanted to highlight before we wrap up here is a couple methods that I really enjoy that I didn't really see highlighted and I think they're really important when it comes to product design in a VC-backed environment when time is like really 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 crucial. So I really love usertesting.com. Oh, oh yeah. Just yeah. a little, little plug. So she talked about how you can use the low fidelity like paper prototypes as a cheap way to get an idea tested quickly. I actually find that like building a paper prototype and finding people to test it is more expensive than building a actual prototype in like potentially high fidelity in a product like Figma and then throwing it up on user testing for a half hour to get some results back. Mm. So I find that we just have tools now that allow you to work at a really fast velocity that I would strongly encourage people to explore. Once you have a pretty established design system and you have these components you can reuse, just like putting together a prototype and uh, getting some user testing eyes on that for mapping a mental model or you know a lot of number of things we've done. So another tool that I really love is Street Intercepts. Uh, they're really useful, I found, when you're working towards a solution and perhaps you're already getting engineers involved in things and then you come against like a, a little gnarly tangle and you're like, oh, we didn't think to like evaluate that. And if it gets to be something where potentially you have conflicting opinions or people feel very strongly one way and other people feel very strongly another, it's useful just to like diffuse that with like a quick bout of research. And you can literally just, I mean, I've done this where you're just like halfway through an afternoon and you're like, oh shoot, we really need to understand this thing. Mm -hmm. And you just print something out, walk downstairs on the street with like a couple Amazon gift cards for like $5. And you're mm -hmm. like, hey, can I give you $5 to like look at this and answer X, Y, Z question? Yeah. It's the get out of the building, but like the yeah. most... It's the most yeah. basic out of the building that you can get. Yeah. And I just, I found that really, really the return on investment for that time was really high. Mm. So I encourage people to look into those those methods, which are not included in this book. Mm. The only things I felt were missing. In general, this was a really expansive exploration of what user research is. I thought she did a really great job of giving just enough information on each method. She also gave the kind of information that, as we talked about, made it so that it was applicable for different sizes and different stages of organizations, mm -hmm. which is great. I think I said at the beginning, the tone was really easy, really like friendly to follow along with. It was very like judgment-free on what you know or don't know about any of the things that she was trying to teach. Yeah. It is very reference-y, though, so it's not really like a sit-down-and-think-about design sort of a book. It's more of a, I need, I need to get some research done. Which one do I do? Why? How? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that it was 
kind of a nice bundling. I felt like for a practice product manager, it's she does a good job of tying together a bunch of frameworks of like, here's how you can model the space of research. Right. And just kind of like helps you slot everything that you know into place and like shine some light in some dark corners. And then I also think for people that are newer to the field, it's a good opener of just things that you should know. Right. Um, yeah. it's, it's very non-judgmental, as you said. I thought right. that was really important. And it's pretty broad. So useful, I think, for like a broad spectrum of skill level and experience and also broad spectrum of organization size is like a very it's a very broadly applicable <laughs> book which yeah. you think would make yeah, it like yeah. really watered down yeah, but it, but it, it wasn't, wasn't at all yeah. yeah yeah so overall i think it was let's see pony wise yeah, where are your ponies what are pony scales at a five right? i think it's yeah five and then bows gonna, obviously for, i mean i feel like yeah it's a four I yeah feel like it's a solid four yeah i give a solid four no bows yeah no bows it's a very sturdy yeah workhorse <laughs> pony clydesdale four clydesdales <laughs> exactly yeah I feel very, very similarly. So, yeah, I think that was uh, time well spent. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. For Again, for user research books, we were having trouble coming up with the right type of book, and I think this one is one that hopefully will be the most useful one for the people in the audience. Well, thank you so much for listening. I am Anna Marie Clifton at Tweet Anna Marie. And Sandy McPherson at Sandy Mac, S-A-N-D-I-M-A-C. And you can reach us on Twitter at Clearly Product as well. Hope you join in next time. Mm-hmm.